Welcome back to Frank Fire Fridays. This is Father Patrick broadcasting from St. Dominic Priory in St. Louis, Missouri. And we're going to begin this uh, session with a prayer of St. Richard of Chichester. And I believe many of you will hear some familiar verses from a popular song. Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits thou hast given me, for all the pains and insults thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, may I know thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly, day by day, day by day. Amen. Well, we're going to be picking up uh, with a second part of our interview with uh, spiritual director, writer, composer, singer, Renaissance man extraordinaire, Steve Givens. This session deals with his own experience of uh, having been treated with chemotherapy for a very rare, almost always uh, fatal disease that's very much like cancer. So here we are with our second part of our interview with Steve Givens. You've You've talked about your experience with uh, this uh, blood disorder. It, it, I guess it wasn't cancer, or it was just cancer-like. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll tell it as briefly as I can. But okay. yeah, so it was, it was a uh, a cancer-like disease. It's called Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Whoa. Um, yeah. And um, for me, it, it showed itself as um, there was a problem with my pituitary gland and, and, and that there was uh, skin rashes is really how it started and couldn't figure out where these rashes were coming from. And they just tried to treat it in different ointments and that sort of thing until someone finally biopsied it and said, no, we got something else going on here. And uh, we got a great cancer society cancer center here in st louis that's affiliated with washington university so i was obviously blessed to have some of the best physician scientists in the world but at the time that i this happened there was no one else in the whole system who was going through this disease wow that's kind of how rare it was wow so i had a great um physician scientist who went out and did some research to figure out how to treat it it's actually more common in kids than it is adults. Um, well, how old were you when you, you saw the symptoms? Um, so 30, no, <laughs> 47. 40, 47, okay. So, and um, so I went, so I went through three rounds of chemo over, over the period of about three years, so it was on and off. So you do this chemo and then everything would go into remission and it'd be really great. And, uh, and then it snuck back. And so they, they said, well, let's just try that again. So we did the same thing again and everything was good for close to a year and then it came back. And so the third time they said, well, let's try something different. And so they tried a different treatment and it again put the disease into remission. And, um, but what happened that time, this makes the story even a little more interesting is um, I wasn't recovering quickly from the chemotherapy. So the chemotherapy itself uh, caused me to have what, what at the time they described as a pre-leukemia, which is 
not all that uncommon that chemotherapy mm -hmm. can actually bring on leukemia. So they did some biopsies and some tests and they felt very certain that I was going to develop leukemia. Um, and so this was in about November of whatever year that was. And, um, and they said, you know what, we really, we really should think about having a stem cell transplant. That's probably the way to take care of this best and we'll have to find a donor and it'll take a little time. And um, my sister, who's 10 years older than me, ended up being a match for the, the donation and willing to do it, of course. And we were, that was around the first of the year. And I said, well, when are we gonna do this? And they said, uh, well, you're gonna be in the hospital for a month when this happens and you're gonna be at home in quarantine. This is before any of us were talking about quarantine. Right, right. right. <laughs> uh, so you're gonna, like two months, you're gonna be kind of out of it. My son was getting married, oh, and gosh. I said, "Can we just wait till right after the wedding? I don't. It can be the day after the wedding if you want, but could we do that?" And they said, "Yeah, look, we'll do that, but we'll keep an eye on it." I said, "Okay, that's fine." Well, what proceeded to happen, and, and this is kind of a, a one of the great mysteries of my life, but from that moment into April, um, all my signs. My, my blood level signs and things like that started getting better and then getting better and getting better and getting better until finally they said, we don't think you need to have the stem cell transplant. We'll keep an eye on it. Um, but it seems to have self-corrected or however you want to describe that, although they didn't have a very good explanation for why it would just get better like that. Uh, and I've been good ever since. So it, it's been a little hmm. wonderful mystery in my life. Uh, but that whole experience, um, I, I wrote a book called Embraced by God, Faith, Facing Chemotherapy with Faith, uh, for 23rd Publications. And uh, I got a chance to kind of tell my story of um, just kind of how I, how I face those times. So. What would you say to somebody, and as we were meant, I was talking to before we started this uh, podcast this morning, I just visited someone in... West Lafayette last weekend, who had just started chemotherapy, and he's uh, uh, older and he has and he has leukemia, mm -hmm. and it's uh, I would presume, and I read a little bit of a of a of a, your um, a book that was in a sort of a preview, and it you talk about hearing those first words from, I don't know if it was a doctor or a nurse, the diagnosis. Um, what was that like for you? And what might you say to somebody who is exactly at that point? And if, you know, of course, sometimes if, you know, I've not, thanks be to God, faced that situation, but I certainly know people that have, and I suspect that our listeners, if they've not themselves dealing with these sorts of issues, certainly know someone that is. And... What kind of what would how did you respond and what might we do as a, a, a someone who loves someone that might be facing this yeah. sort of thing as well? Um, yeah, it was a real obviously a life changing moment, but I I still remember the the conversation I had with my wife. We have two kids; they're now now thirty four and thirty, but they were my my daughter was I think my son was just away at college and my daughter was in high school at the time. We hadn't even told them yet. And the conversation was kind of, um, 
I mean, first of all, you gotta, you know, you gotta trust your doctors and you gotta, you know, I always say, you know, you gotta fight like hell and do everything that you, that you can to make yourself better. But at the same time, it was also a time of, of surrender mm -hmm. and, and of, I guess that's how the book got its name, of really embracing what was going on. And um, I always have a caveat when I talk about this, because I, I don't want anyone to think I never got mad, I never got angry, I was sure, never scared. Sure. I went through all those emotions, of course. And, um, and I'm certainly not saying give up or, or just, you know, don't do what the doctors say or anything. You, know, you have to do everything. But what I found is, is there's a great freedom in turning something over in faith to God. Even something as, as kind of dangerous or uh, unknown as that. Um, so the conversation we had was, you know what, this, this, is the, this, this faith stuff is the stuff we've been trying to teach our kids about and talking about and singing about and all the and writing about. This is what I've been doing for years. You know, this is kind of where the rubber hits the road. And, you know, what's, what's my legacy of all this? You know, I think at the beginning, you know, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. And I think what, what we decided together and what I had to decide was no matter what happens, the legacy is still a legacy of faith. You know, I wanted, to see, I wanted my kids to see me fighting like hell to have as much time with them as possible. But I also wanted them to see um, this wasn't going to affect my faith, um, or maybe not affect. It's not maybe not the right word because I think it certainly did affect, but it wasn't going to change um, where the center of my life was, which was you know in faith in God and faith in Jesus. So um, we kind of had to make that decision. That's where we were going to place all this. That was going to be the center of it. And then let's go out and do what we need to do. You know? And you're saying we, do you mean your family and your, your wife? And yeah, I mean, I think mainly my wife and I, the one had that initial conversation. We've been married for 40 years, met when we were in high school, wow. you know. Um, but then, our, you know, our kids were, they, they both, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it caused them a great deal of, of restless nights and worry. Um, but they also understood where you know where we were in this, and um, so yeah, it really is kind of an embracing. It's certainly not God gave me this disease for a reason. It, 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 that that seems very trite and dangerous. Even uh, it's just this is where I was, and and so what am I going to do with it? Um, and whether what you do with it is six months or whether it's here I am 10 years later still talking about it so um, yeah. you you didn't start life as a Catholic right. uh, um, what faith tradition did you come from uh, I grew up in the United Church of Christ which is you know kind of a main mainline mm -hmm. Protestant faith um, it was um, very scripture oriented so I mean you know, by the time I was 10, I could recite the books of the Bible for you and uh, knew where to find things in the Bible and could memorize things. And, and I think that's a, that was a great, sure. a great foundation. Sure. Um, 
and I didn't I didn't leave that I, I can't say I left that faith because I had some big uh, awakening or anything like that I, I think it was uh, it was a combination of two things my my wife who was my girlfriend at the time was was Catholic and I saw in her family the kind of family life that I would envision for my own uh, so we, we definitely wanted to share a faith um, and um, and I, I actually had also gone to Catholic high school even though mm. I wasn't Catholic it was kind of a alternative to what my parents didn't like about the public schools yeah. at the time. This is a typical St. Louis question for our listeners. What Catholic, <laughs> what school did you go to? Well, I always I'd say they're, they're both, they're both now dead high school. Oh no. Unusual. Oh, that's... My first two years at a, uh, they were both our staffs in high schools. The first one was an all boys school called DeAndre's and it was in our St. Louis. It was a, also a life-changing experience because it was it was about 50% white and 50% black hmm. and that was an awakening for me um, but I played I was, I was a basketball player and um, it really opened up for me a, a, a different sense of racial identity mm -hmm. and who people were you know and that was you know really important for the rest of my life and then that school closed, unfortunately, and I went to St. Thomas Aquinas, how about that, oh. uh, high school, which was in North County in St. Louis, and uh, had a great experience there, also still have friends from that school, and I went on a, a retreat my senior year at a local retreat house run by the Marianists, and uh, that was also uh, very important to my developing faith mm -hmm. life. I, I, it was there, I think I first learned about even the concept of contemplative prayer. What does it mean to be quiet mm -hmm. in prayer? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. do you, so I asked those questions about your, your, your own faith journey to, to go going back to your experience with this very rare disease. Do you think that your, that Catholic formation, your particular, your own Catholic formation um, helped you to, 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 face those challenges in a way that may have been different than if you were in the United Church of Christ or in some other mainline? Um, certainly it, it changed it. I, I don't know that I wouldn't have been able to face it yeah. in a different setting. Uh, I might have had different tools, you know, but certainly um, contemplative prayer, you know, knowing how to just sit in quiet. Um, I write in my book that uh, even though my wife was always happy to go with me for my treatments, most of the time I said, "No, don't worry about it. I'll go. It's a time to be quiet. You know, I can I can read, I can pray. Um, I don't have to be, you know, engaged in conversation." So I think contemplative prayer was a huge part of my treatment experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I had learned even early, that early about um, Ignatian prayer and finding God in this experience and uh, surrendering. Uh, the, the Ignatian prayer called the Susape, the Take Lord Receive prayer, became 
everyday prayer for me. You know, just what does it mean to really, and it still is, it's, it's how I begin my day every day. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to really turn all that over? And, and um, if, if people don't, if they don't, haven't had that experience, it seems like a giving up. But really, there's a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of freedom to of, of, of giving that all over, and then taking the day as it comes, you yeah. know, and see what God has for us each day. Yeah. You know, the challenge. I have really, really good comments. The challenge I I experience sometimes is trying to get people to that place where they can enter into that sort of be still and know mm-hmm. that I am God, because the 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 that call to contemplative life can feel in our culture like doing nothing and i've got to be about something yeah, right right so how do we and, and I, this is putting on your spot in a way that maybe it's not fair but because i i struggle with trying i i I'm, i think i'm a i think people would would say i'm a, a contemplative person i i spend the i have a holy hour every day and i'm very very faithful to it um, although sometimes I feel like Cardinal Bernadine, when he was asked a question, he says, how much time do you, somebody asked him, how much time do you spend in prayer a day? And he says, 30 minutes, and about three of them are really good. <laughs> and the, and right. the gospel right. reading today is the, 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 the apostles coming to Jesus saying, teach us how to pray, and he gives them the Our Father. He says, don't babble like the other mm-hmm. people, you know, here, just pray this. What, what is it? What is it that we can do to help people see how important that is, that yeah. contemplative side of us, to t- tap into that? Right. I think, um, yeah, I, I think the answer to that is to, to somehow help them to see that it's not, it's not a luxury. You know, it's not, you know, idle time is not something for the idle. You know mm-hmm. that, that it's, it's actually a it's it's, it's a uh, it's an assertive it's, it's an assertive uh, exercise in many ways. You know the ability to sit still and do nothing, seemingly. Um, you know I, I've said this often. It's like I remember when I was working at the university, and I'm sure it hasn't changed. You're walking across campus where I knew everyone, it seemed, and you'd say, "Hey, how you doing today?" And the most common response is, I'm busy. Mm. I'm busy. And we wear that busyness like a badge of honor. And, and, and we are busy. I, I, don't, I don't mean they were lying. But it's almost like no one wants to admit mm-hmm. um, to not being busy all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we need to give people permission, you know, to not be. And I, even I struggled with that a little bit when I was easing into retirement. I was a busy person. I mean, my jobs were always kept me busy. Um, I had to almost convince myself it's okay to spend an hour, my first hour every day, in prayer and reading and reflection. Um, and, and I'm much better the rest of the day because of mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, I think it's sometimes we need to give ourselves permission to do that or give others somehow permission to do that is a gift. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I first started my, I, I put my holy hour in my schedule because otherwise I would, I'd allow other things to intrude. And when I first started, it was my first year of, after being ordained, my staff used to come in and I would be sitting in the chapel at prayer <laughs> and they'd come in. I think they were thinking, oh, he's not doing anything. I could bother him with this. And I said, 
no, this is what I'm really doing. I feel, in some respects, the most important part of my day that it, you know, it's, it nourishes me in a way that nothing else can do, I think. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, I, I was telling somebody the other day that um, one of the things the pandemic, I think, has done for me, and there's a lot of time that you're spending at home, is that... Um, I like I like a I like a twenty minute nap and there's there's this there's this look of shock. Right, right, you what? Right. Oh, I haven't taken a nap since nineteen eighty eight. I said, well, I don't I don't know if I would hold. It's like another thing, like the badge of honor. I don't take naps, but I you know it can just be twenty minutes, and I right. it's a refreshing experience, just like our our prayer life yeah, can be. Yeah, I, I think again if. We either have to give ourselves permission for that, or if there are people in our life that we love, to give them, to let them know it's okay, yeah. you know? And yeah, there are plenty of days, and today might be one of them, because I got a kind of a number of meetings today, but around uh, four o'clock or so, I may need that 20 minute, mm -hmm. you know, nap. And, um, to, and it, to me, it, it, it can often feel like prayer, you know, um, just to, I think prayer and sleep and naps and often go hand in hand yeah. and we don't need to be uh, I've had people come to me in spiritual direction and say every time I pray I fall asleep you know yeah. and it's like okay well you don't want to do that all the time but don't beat yourself up either maybe you need that right yeah. now so begin in prayer and if you fall asleep okay well then you fall asleep in the yeah. arms of God and there yeah. you go I, I, you, you, you're almost quoting St. Thomas Aquinas exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. He said it was okay, you're, and he said almost exactly word for word what you said. And I think sometimes that's a value of spiritual direction as well. We we give people the the permission to to to, to do certain things, you know. And maybe it's just that that's that quiet time that we need. One of those things that we give people permission for, I think, in spiritual direction once in a while is anger. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm angry at God, but I'm trying to hold that in. Well, no, you don't need to hold that in. Just let it, you know, let it go, and God will will be fine with that. Yeah. So it's. Yeah. That concludes the second part of our interview with Steve Gibbons. Next week, we are going to be begin a three part interview with writer Gary Schmidt, somebody who I have been reading a great deal these past months of the pandemic. Mary Lee Williams, a good friend of mine in Kansas City, uh, she and I recommend books to one another and she uh, suggested um, Gary Schmidt's books and I've become a, a huge fan. I think I've read six in the last year. So certainly encourage you to listen in on a really uh, fascinating conversation with award-winning author, Gary Schmidt. God bless you. See you next time on the internet.